0: Amen. Well, you can open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. This is the text that the Lord in his providence has given us to focus on this morning as we make our way verse by verse through Luke's gospel. And let's start... As we always do by reading the text, I think it's unique that we are celebrating the incarnation while at the same time covering the resurrection. But the Lord and his providence has brought us to this place. And so we are um, thankful that he directs us. Let's read Luke 24 verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven And to all the rest, now it was Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. Now what we're seeing here is Luke make clear the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you're seeing here. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty straightforward. It's why I've entitled this message The Resurrection of the Lord. And this is going to be a part one. We're seeing here Luke's account of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen his arrest. We have witnessed his trials. We've watched his crucifixion. We have looked upon his death. We have observed his burial. He has been confirmed dead. He has been buried in a tomb. And for three days is being guarded night and day. And through act after act, God has proven Jesus' messiahship. He has fulfilled and vindicated and validated the scriptures. He's vindicated Christ's own claims about himself. He's made clear Christ's substitutionary atoning death. This is all happening act after act as we've witnessed this whole process. And he has done it all in such a way to clearly display his divine providence, his divine sovereignty, his divine control at all points by working every detail according to his predetermined plan. And so everything now has led to this point here where God will raise Christ from the dead. And he will declare him once and for all to be the Lord of all. And that's exactly what the resurrection shows. That's exactly what the doctrine, doctrine of the resurrection makes clear. And so this morning, we are going to make this message sort of a part one of a two-part message. It's going to serve as a bit of an introduction to the resurrection narrative. Oftentimes, the resurrection is not really understood. Oftentimes, it's, it's overlooked. But we can't talk about the resurrection without talking about its implications, and as we've covered the crucifixion narrative, we've talked about the implications of the crucifixion over and over and over again, namely substitutionary atonement, avoiding God's judgment through the death of an innocent substitute. Well, what about the resurrection? And so I thought to myself, rather than put the implications of the resurrection on the back end, maybe put them as a part two of Of a two-part message and part one be the account, or rather than stick them at the end of the message, I think it would be wise for us to put them on the front end, to put these truths, the significance of the resurrection on the front end, so that while we're talking about them, you're not kind of reaching back to think about the narrative and you forget kind of what took place, but that when we cover the narrative, you have these truths, the significance of the resurrection, what it even means, why it's so important. You have those truths ringing in your ears, weighing on your mind as we cover the account next time. And so I think that's a good plan for us. So this week, this morning, I want to talk about the significance of Christ's resurrection, the significance of Christ's resurrection resurrection. And so let's jump right in. We see that the resurrection makes clear, first of all, the lordship of Christ, the lordship of Jesus Christ. The resurrection proves, in other words, that Christ is Lord. And maybe you've had a difficult time over the years understanding what, what, what does, what's so important about the resurrection? What does it mean? I, I can't fully understand how it plays into salvation. Well, again, I just wanna provide clarity for you this morning. The first thing that the resurrection proves is that Christ Jesus is Lord. And so, you see, regardless of the unbelief of Israel, Regardless of the rejection that we've seen by the Jews of who he is, no matter the skepticism and the superficiality and the hatred of the religious leaders, no matter the hesitancy of the crowds, right? Even despite the doubt and the lack of understanding Of the disciples. In other words, no matter what everyone thought, while Jesus was on earth, when he was born during his life, during his ministry, Jesus forbore, forbeared that, all of that, that unbelief, the question, in order to do his ministry, perform. What God had told them to do, knowing that in the resurrection, he would be vindicated as Lord. He would be proven. And so Jesus is proven to be the Lord in the resurrection. There has been talk, there have been doubts, there have been questions, there have been denials, right? Can this be the Christ? Is this him? He calls himself the son of God. This can't be the Messiah. And finally, Jesus is vindicated in who he really is when he rises from the dead. It is shown that Jesus really is divine. His deity is made manifest in the resurrection. You see, by the way, there will be still people who don't believe and who reject him even though he rose, right? Even Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verse 31, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. And they won't believe. And so Jesus, by the way, will be fully vindicated for good at his second coming, when Philippians two ten through 11 says, Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth, and every tongue will confess or affirm or acknowledge or agree to, whether willingly or unwillingly, whether worshipfully or painfully, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so Jesus will be permanently vindicated forever in his second coming. But here in the resurrection from the dead, Jesus is confirmed to be God. Because when he rises, he is shown to overcome death. By the way, this is what Jesus said when I read that passage to you earlier in John chapter two. They said, what authority do you have to teach these things? And Jesus says, my authority will be proven when I come back to life. When I rise from the dead. And so that's what he points to when proving his authority and what we should look to when validating his authority. And and so if he is Lord, this has incredible implications. No one comes back from the dead except the man who is God. And if he is God and he is the Lord, this has great implications for our lives. If he is the creator and the owner and the sustainer and the ruler of all things, then all of his words are true. And he is truly God, the only God. There is only one God. And therefore he is in charge. And therefore all creation is accountable to him. All of mankind is to submit to and to worship him. My kids asked me recently, why do we do these things, daddy? Why, why do we need to obey? Is it just because we don't, we don't want to go to hell? And so we talked, we sat down and discussed a lot of different reasons that involved our hearts loving God. But I saved this reason for last. I said, at the end of the day, he's the only God. We are not God. He is. We didn't create everything. He did. We don't rule and own everything. He does. And therefore, no matter if we feel it or not, he is the Lord. And we are accountable to him. What he says goes. And therefore, we should live for Him. We should obey Him with our lives because He's God. And so this is the first thing that the resurrection proves, that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Now, not only does the resurrection certify Jesus's identity as Lord, but it also proves the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. It also proves the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. It's also proves that God accepted the substitutionary death of his perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty of and atone for sin. Now, this oftentimes is confusing for people. And so let me see if I can't make sense of it for you and bring some clarity. And this is not a perfect illustration um, of course, all illustrations you know, fall short of, of uh, pointing to the, the truths of the word. And it's a little unrealistic in our culture. But if you were to think about it this way, let's say you committed a crime and you were guilty of this crime and you were to go to the judge and the judge is going to punish you for this crime justly, to uphold justice. You're guilty and you deserve punishment. And somebody comes and says, maybe a close family or friend, says, I'm going to serve that time for them. That the penalty would be paid, right? Now that person has to be innocent, completely innocent themselves, or else they'll have to serve their own, they would have to serve their own time, right? In order for them to be able to to substitute, to serve your time, they have to have no penalty that they have to pay themselves. So they pay this crime. Now, while they're paying this, crime, this time for your crime, it's as if you are paying the time for your crime. It's counting for you. It's as if you are being punished and served time for the crime that you committed. It's counting on your behalf. Now, when this person then has served the time on your behalf, served the time for that crime, and is then released, it is proof that that payment has been sufficiently what? Paid. And when they are released, it is as if you are released. You have no more guilt. Your punishment has been paid, and you are no longer in debt. You are free. And so in this same way, God... Is justly punishing sin by crucifying Christ. God's wrath is the penalty or the payment. And as when Christ dies for sin, it's counted on the behalf of those who repent and believe. And when he is raised from the dead, it is proof that God has sufficiently he has accepted Christ's payment. It is sufficient. God's wrath on sin has been paid. And Christ is released. And so this is the idea here. The payment isn't still being paid. If this person was left in jail and never brought out, then you'd say he's still paying on it or the payment is insufficient or I'm going to have to supplement that payment. But the payment isn't still being paid. It has been paid. In this case, the payment is the wrath of God on sin. It hasn't been partially paid, it has been fully paid. And the resurrection is the proof. Therefore, God is able to be the is able to be just and the justifier of the ungodly. He is able to be the just by the penalty being paid and the justifier because he can bring new life and bring forgiveness to the sinner. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 18, it says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If he had not been raised, the penalty is not paid. Do you understand? Your faith is, is nonsense. nonsense. Because Christ is still paying the payment or the payment is insufficient and you are still in your sins. Then those also, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Meaning their sins weren't paid for either. And so this is the eternal Son of God, who by the way is the only one who can bear the eternal wrath of God on sin because we've violated the terms of an eternal God. He has the eternal capacity as God to bear the full weight of sin and live. That's Jesus Christ. And the payment has been fully paid. Now, Romans 4.25 says, he was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised for our justification. You see, that's the idea right there. He was delivered over because of our transgressions, that substitutionary what? Atonement. And he was raised for our justification. Payment paid, right standing with God for all who repent and believe. You can be declared righteous because the payment for sin has been fully paid and you're united to that by faith in Christ. If Jesus had not raised from the dead, sinners cannot have right standing with God or relationship with God. If Jesus is not raised, then he cannot save. Without the resurrection, this has just been another human approach to reach God. Without the resurrection... This is just an admired work by a religious man, but yet it falls short of accomplishing justification for man before God. The resurrection proves the victory of the cross. Listen now. The resurrection proves the victory of the cross. The payment has been accepted, the payment's been accepted. Now, you see, not only does the resurrection affirm Christ's deity, not only does it confirm that God accepted Christ's payment, but thirdly, it also testifies to the fact that we have a living Savior, that we have a living Savior. Now, this one's a lot easier to understand, isn't it? If he died and then he was raised, he's what? Alive. That's pretty clear. And so we have a living Savior. He's alive. He he died. He was raised. He ascended. The Bible says he won't ever die again. He's eternal in his divine nature. But this can't be overlooked, friends. This can't be overlooked. Without a living Savior, we cannot invoke him for present aid and for future hope. Without a living Savior... And really, we have nothing special to offer a lost world. If we have a Savior who's dead and is not still actively saving, you got nothing to offer. Really, a dead Savior is no Savior at all. But we have a living, caring, saving Savior who is able to save those who come to him one who continues to fulfill God's promises. He is alive. He is alive. Hebrews 7.25 says he lives to make intercession for the saints. That's what he's doing constantly, making intercession for the saints. Hebrews 4.25 says he is our high priest who atoned for our sin, He's our high priest. That means he atoned for the sin and he's interceding on our behalf. Now, here's what he's doing. Sympathizing with our weaknesses. Giving us confidence to approach God's throne. Knowing that in Christ, we only receive mercy and grace from God constantly. In 1 Corinthians 15, 25, it says that he is reigning He is ascended to the right hand of the father. And it says that he must reign and rule until all things are put under his feet. And as he continued to live after the resurrection, for instance, he appears to Paul from heaven, right? And in revelation, he is the one who is and who was and who is to come. He's alive, The resurrection establishes the fact that our Savior is alive. Romans 6 says that he will never die again. You have, if you are in Christ, a living Savior. But not only does the resurrection declare Christ to be Lord, not only does it confirm the sufficiency of his payment, not only does it testify to the fact that our Savior lives, it also authenticates our hope to be made new and transformed in this life. In other words, it clarifies the regeneration and sanctification of believers. It clarifies, helps us to understand the regeneration and the sanctification of believers. Let me help you understand this. Romans 6, 4 says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. That means... When he died, it was as if what? We died, paid the penalty, and died to our life of sin. That life is over, right? That's what baptism signifies. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the regeneration and the sanctification of, of the believer. You see just as we are united to Christ in his death by faith which baptism again symbolizes when Christ died for sin accounted for us as if we died for sin and died to our old life for those who have faith in Christ so also we are united with him in the in the resurrection. We died to our old lives. We've been raised to walk in a new life. We are freed from the life of of sin and as if we had died to that life, that life of sin is over, we're in a new life filled with his Holy Spirit and he is helping us to live with him. Our guilt is gone and we have new life. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? creation. Now, oftentimes we use that as a sanctification verse, but I think more so it's a regeneration verse. You have been brought to a new life in Christ. If you've repented of your sins, trusted in Christ, his penalty counts for you. You're dead to your sin. Your sin has been paid for, and you've been raised to walk in a new life filled with the Holy Spirit, made continually into the image of Christ. Romans eight eleven says, but if the spirit of him, listen now, listen to this closely. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the resurrection is the foundation for our understanding of regeneration and sanctification. The penalty for sin has been paid and the power of sin has been broken. The power of sin has been broken. Now let me describe regeneration to you so that you understand. Regeneration, Genesis means the what? The beginning. Regenesis or regeneration would mean what? New beginning, born again, right? So let me describe this regeneration process. Some people ask the question, do we have free will, right? Do we have free will in terms of choosing God being saved from our sin? Well, we have a will, but it's not completely free. There's some freedom to it, but it's not completely free. Some people say, well, that's being like a robot, but it's not when you understand regeneration and God's sovereignty in it. You see, because of the curse, which is because of the fall of Adam, right? In Genesis chapter three, all mankind is born into sin. The, the curse, God has placed the curse on all man. And so um, you say, well, that's not really fair because Adam did it. Why does it count for me? But you see, he was our representative. And so we, we will take the representative card when it benefits us, right? If your grandfather was a king and you're in the line to be the king, what'd you do to earn being a king? Nothing. He's just a representative. It counts on your behalf. Well, this is the same thing. And so he's the representative. We're all, all mankind is, is born into sin. Now we talk about total depravity. And some people talk about total depravity, meaning that we are, we are um, all sinners, Oftentimes people say things like, there's nothing good in us. Well, that's not true. That's why you see some wonderful glimpses in human beings, and you're so tempted to love them, even though they don't know Christ. And you say, are they really that bad? Well, total depravity doesn't mean that there's nothing good in us because we are also created in the image of who? God. So we represent him. But here's what it means. It means that we are guilty, that we cannot save ourselves. And that because of the curse, we are all sinners born into sin. And so it would be like this. It would be like if you were to be in a, in a museum and you see all these paintings on the wall and you look at all these paintings and they're just immaculate paintings by the, some of the best painters in all the world. And you look at these and, and you just, you feel nothing for them. You just can't see it. They just look like a bunch of scribble, right? And, and that's how it is with the sinner and God. Because of the curse, you see God and, and there's nothing. He's not the creator to you. He's not the, the authority to you. He's not the owner. You don't love him. There's no affection. You don't see him rightly. And so this is the state of the, of the human condition that we inherit. Now, in regeneration, what happens is, and, and by the way, in that state, You will choose sin continually over and over again, though you do it freely. So you're not a robot, right? You see, you're free, but you're not totally what? Free because of the curse. You will choose sin over and over and over again, though you do it freely. Now, what happens in regeneration is that God, by the Holy Spirit, comes to that dead heart and those dead eyes, the dead mind, and opens them gives them life. And all of a sudden, you see things as they really are. And you see God as he really is and Christ and what he's done. And you see God as the one who is in charge of all things and the creator of all things and the one whom you're accountable to. And he's lovely. He's lovely. And you've never seen that before. You see by the way, regeneration precedes faith. So they're not, in, they're not, you can't separate them, but if you were to parse them out, regeneration would precede faith. God opens the eyes of the sinner, enabling faith. And so as you see rightly, you see God for who he is and you respond to him in salvation because of his regenerating work. And you will see him rightly and you will trust in him by faith and you will do it every time. Meaning, this is what we call the effectual calling. When God regenerates the man, he will indeed be saved. And you will choose God, though you do it freely. And so this is the process of regeneration. And in that, listen now, the resurrection, because of the resurrection, God is able to do that regenerating work in the sinner. He's able to do this regenerating work in the sinner because they are able to trust in a savior who paid the penalty for sin and he's able to give new life to this person, be the just and the justifier of of the sinner. And this is a wonderful thing, but not only does regeneration happen in light of the resurrection, but also sanctification. Turn to Romans chapter six. Romans chapter six. I want you to read this with me. Romans chapter six. I want to look look at verses one through 14. Romans chapter six, verses one through 14. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to what? Life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. The life you lived under the law has been done away with in Christ. It's over. It's the last life. Now you're raised to walk in a new life. And therefore, in this new life, we present our lives to God. And this is the process of sanctification. That's what Paul said in Philippians chapter three when he said, I wish for nothing more than to know Christ and the power of his what? Mm-hmm. Resurrection, the sanctifying and saving power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul said. Now, let me mention one more implication of the resurrection. Fifthly, the resurrection is also the basis For our confidence, for the confidence that all believers have to be resurrected from the dead. Fifthly now, the resurrection is the basis for the confidence that we have for eternal life. It's the resurrection of the believer. To be resurrected ourselves and to live forever with God If Christ had not been raised from the dead, you see, a resurrection after death, then God cannot raise us. What gives us confidence that he would raise us from the dead or that he has the power to do so? And listen, friends. If we have no hope in the resurrection from the dead, if you have no hope to be raised from the dead After this life, then Paul says our faith in Christ is in vain. We have no reason. This is humanly speaking. Of course, we should follow Christ and obey him because he is the Lord. But Paul says, humanly speaking, if there's no resurrection from the dead, if you have no hope of eternal life, if this life isn't... isn't, done away with, and you aren't promised to have new life forever in the presence of God, then humanly speaking, you're wasting your time following Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In verse 32 of the same chapter, he says, if the dead are not raised, you ready for this? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's live however we want. But the resurrection gives the hope that believers will live forever with glorified, physical, resurrected bodies, that God will raise him up, raise them up by his power. In the same way he raised up Christ. First John 3 2 says. Like Christ rose in a glorified physical body, so shall we. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3 says that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 2 Corinthians 4.14 says, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. The one who raised Christ will raise us. And again, Without this promise of resurrected life, we have nothing of any value to offer the world. What are you gonna offer the world if there's no eternal life to be offered? And by the way, this is the, the fatal, uh, pointless hope of other re- uh, religions. For instance, Buddhism or Hinduism. Uh, they have no way of knowing whether they've earned the favor of the impersonal supreme power that they believe in. And their lives are just going to recycle over and over again until they earn it. And they'll be back here. And even when they do, it's, they end up in a incoherent place forever. When they finally reach the apex of what is required. And, and that's no hope at all. That's no hope at all but we have a hope to offer the world that is unique. Eternal life in perfect union with God. John 14, 19 says, Jesus says, because I live, you also will live. You see then the resurrection certifies the Lordship of Christ, the sufficiency of his payment, the fact that our savior lives, that sinners can be regenerated and sanctified and that all believers will experience the resurrection from the dead. That's pretty significant, isn't it? Now listen, with all this in mind, and by the way, I just briefly flesh these out, um, we really could spend a week clarifying each one of these, okay? So you can do more study on your own or if you have any questions about them, Come up to me after the service and I'd love to help you answer them. But with them in mind, listen now, it's so wonderful. And it's no wonder that the scriptures focus so much on the resurrection. With all this in mind, it's no wonder that the scriptures focus so much on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the resurrection is just, it's not just an add-on to the crucifixion. It's the completion of it. It's the completion of it. The rest of the New Testament is written in light of the resurrection's implications. Starting from this point on. In fact, the writers do more than affirm the reality of the resurrection. Though just to note, let me tell you this, that there's no passage of scriptures that gives us any details about it. Isn't that interesting? How the resurrection happened. Only that it did happen in the events surrounding it. I'd like to know what actually happened. What it looked like. Let me inside the tomb a little bit to see, right? But it did occur. Now listen, the writers of scriptures do more than affirm its reality. And it's all over. What they do is they declare the meaning of it, like we just talked about, the consequences of it, the effects of it, some of which I just described to you. But in the rest of Luke chapter 24, we're gonna see the resurrection being pointed to as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In Acts 2, verse 24, Peter on the day of Pentecost will preach on it. In Acts 4, 2, Peter and John will be arrested for proclaiming it. And just a few verses later, after they're arrested, Peter will stand for it. In Acts chapter 10, verses 38 through 40, Peter will declare it, the resurrection, to Cornelius and those in his home. In Acts chapter 13, verses 27 through 30, Paul will proclaim it in the synagogue in Antioch. And in Acts 17, 31, Paul declares it and its implications in Athens on Mars Hill. Paul will write of it, of the resurrection in the book of Romans, in the book of 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, second Timothy it's emphasized in the book of Hebrews Peter will write of it in 1 Peter 3 John will point to it and of course the book of Revelation and that's not including all of the description within the gospels since its occurrence the resurrection has always been the focus of the church and it must continue to remain the focus of the church we can't overlook the resurrection You see, the resurrection confirms and completes and validates and vindicates Christ's work on the cross. And it must always be seen that way. In fact, it is so important that, let me tell you this little fact. The Saturday before Jesus' death, right, the Sabbath, it was the last legitimate Sabbath. It was the last ever legitimate Sabbath. Christians then gathered on Sunday, the Lord's day, right? You know this? This is what happened at that point. And so let me explain this a little bit to you. Christ abolished the ceremonial law by fulfilling the moral law on our behalf. The ceremonial law was a temporary reaction to, not that God reacted impulsively, but a a temporary uh, atonement, appeasement, for the breaking of the moral law, but it can never cover sin, right? And so listen now, okay? In Colossians chapter two, it mentions a list of laws that Christians no longer, and it's representing the whole moral, ceremonial law of God. Listen close. It's representing the whole ceremonial law of God. And it, in Colossians two, it lists some of these laws and it's declaring that Christians no longer need to abide by these laws. Why? Because they were shadows. Listen close. Shadows pointing to realities. They were shadows. It's like if you were to see a shadow on the ground, it's it's in light of or pointing to a, a, some kind of reality that's there. And so these sh- were meant to be shadows, like dietary laws, uh, meant to point to uh, purity, keeping uh, purity as God's people. Well, you can never attain purity through dietary laws. True purity before God comes through now who? Christ. You see, all of these were also to make God's people distinct. When you keep the Sabbath, you are distinctly God's people. Israel, they're the people who keep the Sabbath. They're distinctly Yahweh's people. They're they're God's people. It made Israel distinct. But now what makes us a distinct people? That we are in who? Christ. You see, all of these were meant to point to the reality in Christ. And so let me just show you this. Colossians chapter 2. Turn there if you can. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. I want you to just see this for yourself. I'll read from verses, uh, starting in, um, in verse 16, it says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. And with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. referring to the things that all perish as they, were, uh, they are used, according to the human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. You see, these people wanted to still trust in these acts of the law. And all of these were meant to point to a reality in Christ. You see, all of this, it points to, uh, they're not to be trusted in. They're meant to, they were meant for a time to point to the realities in Christ. Now listen, that's what the Sabbath did. The Sabbath made God's people distinctly God's people. And so what we understand though is that it was just a shadow of what we find in Christ. You see, we are distinctly God's people in Christ. We have a day of worship to the Lord in Christ, You see, it was meant to point to Christ, rest in Christ, no longer uh, under the law, the true worship of God. Sabbath was meant to be a worshipful day. But think about this. We find now worship in spirit and in what? Truth in Christ. You see, beginning with the resurrection, at the abolishment of the ceremonial law, listen here, beginning with the resurrection, the church began meeting on Sunday. The Sabbath was no longer required. God's people are made distinct through Christ, in Christ, and the church began meeting on Sunday, which was the first day of the week. See, Saturday, the Sabbath was the seventh day, and Sunday was the first. And in Acts 20, verse 7, the church meets on the first day. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, when you come together on the first day of the week, bring your offerings. It's the Lord's day. John refers to it as the Lord's day in Revelation, not to be confused with the day of the Lord. It became the day of worship for God's people. Now hear this. It's in light of the Lord's resurrection. You see, the church didn't begin meeting on Friday. The church began meeting on Sunday. The church didn't begin meeting on Friday because On Sunday, the Lord's work that happened on Friday was vindicated and completed. And its effects are being experienced by God's people, those who have new life in Christ, meeting together in worship. And by the way, let me just tell you this, we're almost done. That's why throughout most of the year, we fill this day with the worship of Christ. Because it's the Lord's day, right? Sunday school, worship services, Sunday evening. It's the Lord's day. Typically, most American Christians struggle to attend a couple hour service on a Sunday, don't they? And because they think that it should be dedicated, the rest of, of the day should be rededicated to other things. So they got to hurry out because they got a lot to do on the Lord's day. And so they struggle to even attend a couple hour service or, or even will produce a Saturday night service in order to have all of Sunday for ourselves. And you see, the Christian faith has always considered Sunday the Lord's What? Day. Which again speaks to the central position that the resurrection holds. Listen now, the resurrection in scripture represents a transition. It's a focal starting point for new life in Christ. The church is born. Salvation is possible. And we see this effect now happen through the book of Acts and on into the New Testament. Now, let me mention one more thing. The early church's faith in the resurrection was rooted in eyewitness testimony. It was rooted in eyewitness testimony. You see, after the resurrection in the New Testament, and some of which we'll cover in Luke chapter 24, listen now, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to the other women who came to the tomb. During the day on Sunday, he appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. The same day he rose. Then he appeared to Peter specifically. On Sunday evening, he appeared in Galilee to all the disciples minus Thomas. On the following Sunday, a week later, he appears to all the disciples, including Thomas. Then he appears to seven apostles on the shore of the Sea of Galilee Then he appears to more than 500 disciples, probably on a mountain in Galilee. He appears to James specifically. He appears to the apostles at the Ascension. Then later on to Paul on the road to Damascus and then to Paul on three other occasions. And then, of course, in the book of Revelation. And so it was rooted in reality. It was rooted in reality. Now, with all this in mind, the weight, the significance, the importance of the resurrection, next time we will see the actual account of the resurrection that makes all of this possible. Now, let me just preview those points, we'll be done. Let me just preview those so that maybe this week, I thought maybe this week and next, because we got Christmas coming up, maybe, maybe in the next couple weeks, you weeks, you, you can spend some time in the resurrection and maybe this will help you sort some things out. Okay, what we're gonna see next week, maybe you could just take a picture of it when it comes up. I see a bunch of phones coming out already. You, got, you see, we're gonna see discovery in verses one through three. We're gonna see declaration in verses four through seven. This is what we're gonna cover in the account next time. We're gonna see disclosure in verses eight through 10. And we're gonna see disbelief in 11 through 12. Now, let me tell you something. What I want you to know about these points and these headings when I do this all the time, it's not necessarily novice or profound. These are just hooks to hang your thoughts on as you go. You see, narrative is not necessarily divided into like logical thoughts. It's a narrative, right? But narratives, um, they're not divided up into logical thoughts per se, like a a progression, like an epistle would be. Right, where the doctrine being taught is just very explicit. But as in all the Bible, the verses or the section or the unit has a main point, right? And, and narratives are usually, divide, uh, they progress usually pretty cleanly. And so these points are just a summary of what's being said in each of its parts. And all of them are leading to the one main point of the section. So we're gonna see the the discovery of the empty tomb. Then there's the declaration of the angels to those who come. Then there's the disclosure of the women to the rest of the apostles. And then there's the disbelief of the apostles. And all of that is how God designed us to progress through and understand the narrative of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So listen, friends, this is where where it all begins. The resurrection of Christ. It confirms Jesus as Lord. It confirms that his atoning work was sufficient. It gives us the comfort of having a living savior. It is the foundation and basis of our understanding for regeneration and sanctification. And it is the foundation for our hope to have resurrection from the dead. And let me tell you this as we close. Faith in the resurrection, saving trust in the resurrection is what brings about salvation. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Most of you know this by heart, but let's just look at it as I close this out. Romans chapter 10, verses nine through 10. It says, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, that's the idea. Now you say, I only got to believe in the resurrection. No, that's the whole point. That's what I'm telling you. The resurrection encompasses all of it. It encompasses the incarnation, the perfect life, the substitutionary atoning death and the resurrection from the dead and then the ascension into heaven and the reigning and ruling forever. You see, that's the idea. When we believe in the resurrection from the dead, we believe Christ is the Lord and that his work atones for our sins. I pray that you would trust in that, that you would believe in that as this scripture encourages us to do. Let's pray. Father, now we come before you and we're really thankful that you give us such an account that we can understand the significance of the resurrection throughout all of scripture. And we, I pray, Lord, that we would never overlook the resurrection, that we would have a, an understanding of it, that we would continue to focus on it and, and to be thankful for it, knowing its significance. Lord, we see the rest of the New Testament and how it emphasizes it. We see that all of this is rooted in the proof of eyewitnesses. We see how it's even characterized the church and its day of meeting. And I pray that in a couple of weeks, as we look at the actual account, which is so full of life and excitement, that we would marvel and that we would still have these weighty truths ringing in our minds. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. And church, you can stay seated as one of our members, Antonio, blesses us with the gifts that God has given him.